to When the Stars Disappear, a podcast that looks to scripture for guidance when our lives seem covered by darkness. Our name comes from the story in Acts about the Apostle Paul sailing across the Mediterranean Sea in order to appear before Caesar in Rome. In those days, sailors used the sun, moon, and stars to navigate. But Paul's ship sailed into a storm that blotted out all of heaven's lights, leaving them unsure where they were or what to do. When storms of suffering or doubt overtake us, we can feel like they did. We can feel as if all of the stars that have been guiding us have disappeared, leaving us unable to understand life or know what to do. Our guide as we address these issues is Mark Talbot, a professor of philosophy at Wheaton College. Mark suffered a paralyzing accident when he was 17 and now is writing a four-volume series on suffering in the Christian life. But with the first volume, When the Stars Disappear, and the second volume, Give Me Understanding That I May Live, are available now from Crossway and wherever books are sold. In this episode, Paul and Mark discuss why God gave our first parents a categorical prohibition and not merely some positive commands. Prohibitions add an important element to human life. They help us to recognize what we must never do and they enable us to express our unqualified resolution to live lives of complete and exclusive commitment to another person. Let's listen in. Mark, as you said last time, our episode was a cliffhanger. We had just gotten to the point where you were going to tell us why. Why God gave that negative command to Adam and Eve, not just the positive commands, but why the restriction the prohibition not to eat from the forbidden tree that God gave Adam and Eve. So when I asked that last time, you said, time's up. We'll cover it <laughs> in the next episode. So now's the next time. What's the answer? Well, the answer is based, Paul, in the fact that compliance with a prohibition, unlike compliance with some positive commands, can be decisive and complete. Now, I need to clarify what it means to say that compliance with a prohibition can be decisive and complete. So let me give an example. Let's say that you have prohibited me from walking in your backyard and that you mean it categorically. Mm -hmm. In other words, you mean never walk in my backyard. Now, I could decide each time I was near your backyard whether or not I was going to walk in it or not. But I could also make a decisive choice once and for all. I could choose, perhaps right now, always to obey your prohibition by resolving never, ever to walk in your backyard. Now, although there's no never in God's prohibition at Genesis 2.17, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you must not eat, for in the day that you eat from it, you shall surely die. Although there's no never there, it's meant categorically. Adam and Eve were never, ever to eat from the forbidden tree. Right. Again, in in my context, in the legal context, we we might call this an injunction, you know, where you go to a court, a court of chancery, and you ask that one of the parties be completely enjoined from undertaking some kind of behavior that we might regard as harmful or dangerous. And it's only going to be if, in fact, they then do what they're enjoined to do, that they are abiding with the injunction. That's right. 
So what I want to claim now is that some of life's most crucial aspects require us to resolve never, ever to do some things. And prohibitions, prohibitions help us to recognize these aspects and encourage us to make the appropriate resolutions. How is that? What are some of the ways that prohibitions help us to actually recognize what we must not do? Well, let me mention two. First, they help us to recognize that there are lines that we must never cross. I'm thinking here especially of horrific acts, uh, the kinds of acts that we describe as inhuman, such as some of the Nazi medical experiments during the Second World War and the acts of some serial killers. We call those acts inhuman because we know that they should never, ever be done by any human being. Okay, so I may be sorry I asked this, but let's play it out a little bit. Could you give me just an example or two of of what you mean here? I'll give you one example. Sure. Josef Mengele, a Nazi medical doctor, combed the arrivals at Auschwitz for identical twins, on whom he then conducted various experiments by experimenting on one twin while treating the other as a control. Many of the twins he experimented on died, and then... Their twin was killed, and they were both dissected in order to glean medical information, and especially medical information that Mengele thought might help aid Aryan people. That's horrible. Well, here it gets worse. The experiments included things like this. They included injecting brown irises with blue dye to see if they could be turned blue like Aryan eyes. They involve things like subjecting a twin to hours of freezing cold in order to find out how long the twin would live and then comparing the organs of that twin after that twin died with its twin's organs to see if the cold had caused any significant differences and even sewing twins together to try to create a conjoined twin. Mm. Now, these acts, I think we'd all agree that these acts are inhuman. Prohibitions may, in fact, tell us that other acts that we don't call inhuman still are things that people should never do, and maybe we should pay more attention to them. For instance, in the Old Testament, Abimelech took Abraham's lie that his wife, Sarah, was just his sister and uh, took her for his wife, was going to have her for his wife. He had not yet consummated the marriage. God appeared to him at night and warned him that this was another man's wife, and he'd better give her back. And Abimelech was properly upset uh, with Abraham about this and said, what have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you? that you brought on me and my kingdom a great sin, you have done things to me that ought not to be done. Yeah, yeah, that's that's really good, Mark. Thank you. You know, the, the whether it's Abimelech's comment about Abraham's lie or the things that you're describing with the Nazis, these are horrible things. And they go against the fundamental agreed upon ideas, I think, of what it means to be human which is probably why I am, and I'm sure all our listeners right now, recoiling from some of the things that you just told us about. I mean, it's just agreed upon reprehensible stuff. Yeah, yeah, it's absolutely horrible. Here is the important point that comes out of this. When someone addresses us 
with a strong prohibition in the way that Abimelech addressed Abraham. You have done to me things that ought not to be done. What they're doing is they are recognizing that we are accountable for how we exercise our freedom. Interesting. We must acknowledge that we are to limit our freedom in specific ways. Distinctively human life, distinctively human life is life that is to be lived freely, yet within circumscribed limits. Yeah, it's really helpful. Now, God's words to Adam at Genesis 2, 16 and 17, are the first time a human being was addressed and told that his freedom was to be limited in some specific way. Of all the trees in the garden, you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you must not eat, for on the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. That permission of all the trees in the garden, you may freely eat, and that prohibition, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you must not eat, outlined the proper shape of Adam's life. Hmm. They outlined the proper shape of his humanity, a shape that was being prescribed by his creator that he was accountable to keep. Yet, of course, as a created person, he was still free to decide if he would keep the prohibition, if he would give his life its proper shape. Right, right. You're saying that there was a framework in which Adam was designed to live. And if you live within that framework... If he kept on living that way, listened to the prohibitions and kept them, life would have continued just fine. Uh, That's right. Now, another point we should take from Genesis 2 is this, Paul. Prohibitions can be stated more or less forcefully. In fact, we tend to pay more attention to what is said to us more strongly. And so the more forcefully a prohibition is made, the more effective that may be in prompting us to obey it. Hmm. Now, a prohibition can be strengthened by being accompanied by a very strong sanction. A sanction is the penalty that will be imposed if the prohibition is violated. Okay. So severe sanctions indicate how serious violations of specific prohibitions will be. And that is exactly what the very severe sanction that God appended to his prohibition of eating from the forbidden tree did. Okay. Of all the trees in the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you must not eat, for on the day that you eat of it you will surely die. This severe sanction was intended to drive home to Adam how crucial it was for him to obey this prohibition. It was literally a matter of life and death. Okay. Um, I have a question at this point, and I think you'll probably get to this at some point, Mark. But, I mean, isn't this a case of where the punishment does not fit the crime? I mean, I could see if, right? if I could see if God said, if you eat that fruit and it's too sugary, you'll get cavities. Or if you eat too many pieces of these fruit, you'll gain some weight. Uh And that feels logical, but why the severity of this punishment? Why is this a matter of life or death to obey? Now, I think that's a question that people naturally raise, Paul. Our answer to it will come up next time. Another question. What I'll point out next time is that, in fact, there could not have been any other 
consequence that could come of Adam and Eve not keeping the prohibition. But okay. I mean, next time to do that. Okay, well, another cliffhanger. Uh, we'll take your word <laughs> out let you we'll let you continue here, Mark. Thanks. So what we've done now, Paul, is we've talked about the first way in which a prohibition can help us recognize what we mustn't do. It sets a clear boundary that is not to be crossed. It helps outline what human life is supposed to be like. And when it's stated forcefully enough, it can actually help us take it with adequate seriousness. Now here then is a second way, and this second way harks back to what we were discussing at the end of our last episode. Okay. Our uttering of prohibition can express our unqualified resolution to live a life of complete and exclusive commitment to another person. So think again of the example we brought up last time of a couple reciting traditional wedding vows that include the words forsaking all others. When they say those words, they are acknowledging that they are prohibited from allowing anyone other than the person whom they are marrying to intrude on the exclusive person-to-person communion that they're vowing to share with this one person. Mm -hmm. Now, as we noted last time, when Adam exclaimed upon seeing Eve at last, she is bone from my bone and flesh from my flesh, he was seeing her as prolonging and as completing his very being. You remember that I mentioned the Hebrew with regard to this. She shall be called Isha. That's one word, Hebrew word for woman. She shall be called Isha because she was taken out of Ish, one of the Hebrew words right. for man. Remember that, yep. And as you'll recall, Paul, I noted that his declaration, she is bone from my bone and flesh from my flesh, is actually a covenant-making formula by which Adam was vowing his complete and exclusive fidelity to Eve. Hmm, interesting. Now, that, that vow is so important that the narrator of Genesis 2 interrupts the story for a moment in order to comment. He intrudes himself and he says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and they shall become one flesh. To which you'll remember Jesus himself added, what therefore God has joined together, let no one separate. So by uttering these words, by Adam uttering the words, she is bone from my bone and flesh from my flesh, Adam was resolving to be completely, decisively, and exclusively devoted to Eve for as long as they would both live. You know, you mentioned the vows forsaking all others a little earlier. I've heard it also said that with respect to this commentary at Genesis 2.24, that Moses actually uses the Hebrew word for forsake. So when the Husband leaves father and mother. He forsakes father and mother, not that he hates his father and mother, but that he forsakes them so that the principal relationship between for this man is actually not his parents anymore, but now his wife. And this would seem to tie into your claims of this complete, decisive, and exclusive devotion to Eve. No, that's right, Paul. The word for leave his father and mother, the word for leave is in Hebrew, azav, and it means to forsake. Interesting, yeah. 
Now, what I want to do is I want to point out the way in which there is a really important parallel here with regard to what God wants with us and our commitment to him. Ray Ortland Jr. stresses in a piece that marriage according to scripture, I'm quoting him now, marriage according to scripture is not merely a human institution, hmm. completely malleable in the hands of human custom. That'd be worth stopping and thinking about, wouldn't it? Right, sure. (laughs) (laughs) Marriage, according to scripture, is not merely a human institution, completely malleable in the hands of human custom. It's a divine creation intended to project, this is great, marriage, human marriage is a divine creation intended to project onto the screen of the human imagination, the beauty of a savior who gives himself sacrificially for his bride and of his bride who yields herself gratefully back to him. Yeah, that's that's enough for a whole podcast right there, just a whole session on that. So that's that something we, in the future. Yeah, we could be talking about Ephesians 5 and the very end of Revelation with all sure. of that. Right. But now, having given that, if we heed... Gerhard von Rob's, uh, Rod's observation that we mentioned more than once, that nothing in Genesis 1 and 2 is here by chance. Everything must be considered carefully, deliberately, and precisely. What is said here is intended to hold true entirely and exactly as it stands. If we heed von Rod when he says that, we should expect that the fact that God's prohibition of humans eating from the forbidden tree was followed by Eve's creation is significant. So our question again is, why is the text structured this way? Yeah, I'll bite. Why? (laughs) (laughs) I think it's because Adam's joyous recognition of Eve as the only being in the entire visible creation with whom he could be in complete communion at last. Mm. He's seen all the animals, none of them will do at last. She is bone from my bones and flesh from my flesh. I think that that joyous recognition of Eve as the only being in the entire visible creation with whom he could be in complete communion was meant to help him realize that if he could have a similar relationship with God, then that would complete him. Wonderful. Almost, um, Eve is almost an object lesson of what Adam could have with him. Exactly. Exactly. In discussing Eve's creation, Henri Blochet observes that God never intended for Adam to be alone. He says that, in fact, the human being is a mit sign. That's a German word a being with. The human being is a mit sign, a being with. Human life attains its full realization only in community. Mm-hmm. So true, deeply meaningful human life is personal life as the sort of accountable life that we as bearing God's image are called to. True, deeply meaningful human life as personal life involves varying degrees of commitment to others in community. Interesting, yeah. Now, in one case, marriage, it requires a complete, decisive, and exclusive commitment to another person. 
Yet when God presented Eve to Adam as he awakened from his God-induced sleep, Adam didn't view making that commitment as in any way restricting him or as in any way being life-denying. Instead, he entered into it eagerly, recognizing that it was the gateway to a full and complete earthly life. Right. And so that correspondence between Adam and Eve, that the characteristic of the character of that relationship, it's actually reflected when Adam says, after seeing all the animals and realizing that none of them were really for him, that here at last, as he says, is bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh to correspond to him and relate to him in the same way, again, back to the object lesson comment, that God was inviting Adam to commune with him through the prohibitions. Yes, yes, exactly, Hmm. exactly. Fascinating, absolutely fascinating. So we can now wrap this up in terms of what we're saying about this prohibition is that by issuing his categorical prohibition with its dire warning, God was doing uh, at least two things, the same two things that we've already mentioned. First, he was enabling our first parents to step into mature personhood. Mm -hmm. Because without something like this prohibition, they could not have become fully accountable persons. Accountability requires that we be aware of limits that we ought not to transgress. And in fact, maturity acknowledges and respects these limits. Yeah, that's what it means to be, at least in part, what it means to be a mature person. Right, right. Yet, secondly, the Lord was offering both Adam and Eve, once she was created, much more. By stipulating what they must not do, the Lord was giving them the opportunity to choose not only what they would or wouldn't do, but also who or whose they would be. Yeah, that's excellent. As their creator, God had the right to require their obedience. Yet in issuing his command, he wasn't just asserting his right. He was stepping back and bidding them to choose to live in wholehearted, lifelong, committed fellowship with him. He was, in effect, as our Lord is pictured in Revelation chapter 3, he was, in effect, placing himself before them and saying, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Yeah, that's really a beautiful picture. Perfect way of thinking about this. But communion with God, we need to remember, requires keeping his commandments as in fact Jesus stressed. In John 14, Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. So the God who would walk in the garden in the cool of the day, as we'll see in chapter three of Genesis, was inviting our first parents to ratify their love for him, to affirm their joy in his steady presence.
the tree's fruit, not in its own right, but as, an, as appointed to a function and carrying a word from God, confronted them, as Kidner said, with God's will, particular and explicit, and gave them a decisive yes or no to say with their whole being. Obeying wouldn't have deprived them of any true good. Indeed, by enabling them to decide what their relationship with God would be, the prohibition paradoxically was actually giving them more freedom, not less. And an invitation then to become more, invited more into personhood, not less. To become more fully who they were intended to be, not less. Yes, yes. Now, our first parents' decision was to be their RSVP. They could secure truly abundant life only by decisively committing themselves always to obey God's command, his prohibition. They needed to respond to God's, you must never eat from that tree, with a decisive, yes, we will never eat from that tree. Would they do so? Would they choose to gain human life's greatest possible good, deep personal communion with the Lord as real spiritual life, the only kind of life that ultimately matters because otherwise we sink to the level of beasts? Or would they choose to throw it all away by disobeying him? Hmm. In issuing his command, the Lord lifted his relationship with Adam and Eve out of the realm of mere duty, transferring it into the realm of true love, freely given in a love match. They're honoring him. They're honoring him by keeping his command, by vowing never to eat from the forbidden tree, would have been like honoring a wedding vow to forsake all others and be faithful to each other for as long as both would live. So, Paul, this finally gets to the answer that you've asked, why did yeah. God, yeah. why did God um, uh, issue this prohibition? It, he issued the prohibition because in fact, by means of it, he was bidding our first parents to make a glad surrender. Hmm. And if our first parents Right. had completely, decisively, and joyfully chosen to obey God's prohibition. The very way that um, a bride and a groom can joyfully take their wedding vows, if they had done that, he would have entered into full communion with them, and they would have known the ultimate blessing of his everlasting, complete presence. Yeah, Really, really helpful, Mark. Uh, just thinking in terms of the way that you've described for us how the creator of all things could enter into a relationship, what was on offer to his creatures and to, in particular, Adam and Eve, certain special creatures that he had he had carved out for that relationship. So thank you. That's extremely helpful. Um, next time, if I understand you correctly, we're going to be talking about what you described as disastrous consequences of Adam and Eve refusing to keep God's prohibition. And again, if I understand you correctly, you're going to tell us more about how the inevitable consequence of their failure to keep the prohibition 
would be their deaths. Is that is all that fair to say? That's exactly right. Could not have been anything other than their spiritual death and ultimately their biological death. Well, weighty stuff there, Mark. Thank you again for your time today. We look forward to our next meeting. Thanks, Paul. Continuing the discussion of why God prohibited Adam in Genesis 2.17 from eating from the tree of good and evil, Mark and Paul show that God was doing two things in issuing that prohibition. First, God was enabling our first parents to step into mature personhood. And second, by stipulating what they should not do, the Lord was giving them the opportunity to choose to be freely and fully committed to God. As their creator, God had the right to require their obedience, but he chose to step back and bid them to choose to live in wholehearted, lifelong, committed fellowship with him. Thus, we see that communion with God requires keeping his commandments, as Jesus affirms in John 14. Obeying this command would have resulted in the ultimate blessing of God being fully present with Adam and Eve forever. Mark's conversation partner for this episode has been Paul Winters. If you found this content helpful, please let us know by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Your review will help others find these discussions as well. And if you have any questions about what was discussed in this episode, email us at info at whenthestarsdisappear.com. We'll answer listeners' questions as soon as we have enough of them to make up an episode, and we'd love to answer one from you. This is Lauren Susanto on behalf of Mark and Paul, thanking you for listening to When the Stars Disappear.